ever get to the point where the whole cage is built and they can slam the door shut and say, we've eliminated paper currency and now we can track every payment you make and if we don't like your politics, we can simply turn you off and now you have no money. You can't buy or sell and you're essentially at our mercy. So it becomes trivial to implement a tyranny. Stan Larimer, the godfather of BitShares, continues to elaborate upon the potential dystopian uh, implications of uh, future tyrannical governments. Stay tuned for more. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We are here today with Stan Larimer, the CEO of Cryptonomics and godfather of BitShares. Stan is an expert in real-time industrial-grade digital currency and is an engineer who developed unmanned drones. Stan has previously worked for SAIC, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, and General Dynamics. Stan, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Oh, okay. Well, I guess I have uh, two different things I'd say. The uh, first one is probably what we'll talk about and the second one's more important. Mm-hmm. Uh, first one is uh, that uh, I've helped to deploy a new global financial system that will give honest money in a level playing field for all mankind. And uh, so that's my main business activity. More important than that is that I've taught probably a thousand hours of uh, Bible-type courses and so on. And uh, that, I think, is more eternally significant than uh, anything else I might do. But still, it only represents less than 1% of my total time on this planet (laughs) and therefore is woefully inadequate to that task. So global fin- a new global financial system, why is this something that we need? Why is it something that you decided that you would like to work on? Well, uh, you know, I can take that to several different levels. Let's take it to the common man level, the experience right now that people have with their bank, mm-hmm. and whether they think they really like that or not. Uh, most of the time you go into your bank and you'll see a friendly teller, but mm-hmm. then whenever you try to do something, they'll say, well, you know, it's going to cost you $30 to wire money somewhere. Uh, and if you do, you know, maybe uh, we'll sit on the money for a, a week before you can take it out. And if you go in and say, you know, I've, I've got a lot of money in my bank here. I'd like to take out a, a nice chunk of it. And they'll say, I'm sorry, you can only withdraw maybe $1,000 a day. You'll have to come back over and over again. You know, hmm. all those kinds of hassles. Uh, when we go overseas and want to open a bank account, Americans really have a hard time doing that anymore because hmm. uh, our banking regulations are so draconian that most uh, other people, other countries say, I don't want to deal with Americans. Uh, if I do, I've got too much paperwork. So there's a lot of things about the big centralized banking system that inconveniences uh, Americans and, quite frankly, puts their freedom at risk. Right. Now, there are, it sounds like there are a lot of regulations in the United States pertaining to the banking industry. 
supposedly the individuals who have implemented those regulations and laws might say those are there to protect consumers in the very least. Uh, Obviously, when you look at cryptocurrency, you might say there is a dearth of regulations. How is it that individuals can feel safe and confident uh, in their financial resources, particularly um, when you have uh, volatility in the market um, in in, in this decentralized uh, new global financial system? Well, those are all really great questions. Let me dispense with the first or the last one first. Yeah, <laughs> volatility is both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you want something that serves as a store of value, volatility is bad. If you want something that serves as something that you can invest in and, and make money by doing trading uh, and by using your skills to anticipate movements in the market, volatility is your friend because mm-hmm. it's the way you make money as prices change. So uh, there are thousands of digital currencies out there today, and some of them are pegged to gold, Mm -hmm. very stable. Other ones are pegged with uh, more elaborate algorithms and and also very stable. And others are highly volatile and growth-oriented. And, you know, I think we all would benefit from having the freedom to choose what mix of that we want to invest in and uh, not be prevented from doing that. Right now... Uh, one of the rules that we have is that you've got to be rich before you're allowed to, an accredited investor, so mm-hmm. to speak, in order to participate in some of these markets. And yet, rich people like uh, certain Hollywood celebrities you might think of mm-hmm. versus uh, poor people like certain geeks you might think of, mm-hmm. there's a vast difference. The geeks know exactly what they're doing and yet can't participate because they're not rich, mm-hmm. and the people who are rich may not even have a clue as to how the world works, and yet they are permitted to do so. So those are the kind of regulatory constraints I'd like to see reform in. So let's talk about exactly, let's get into crypto, not, cryptocurrency um, and talk about what we're talking about. Right now, there's $100 billion in the cryptocurrency market internationally, and your son, Dan, is the originator of blockchain technology um, and you've been quoted as saying you've been trying to create a disruptive real-time industrial grade leap beyond Bitcoin so could you explain to our listeners what is blockchain technology what is uh, Bitcoin which I think was made famous with the Facebook movie and and what and what are you trying to do bit shares okay well uh you know, Bitcoin was the first original uh, digital currency, mm-hmm. and blockchain is nothing but another way of saying distributed spreadsheet. Okay, so don't let the fancy terminology uh, intimidate you. Uh, the only difference is that it, uh, with blockchain technology, uh, all the uh, data that you want to store is spread across a lot of people's computers so that one person can't corrupt it or cheat. And so it's a, a way of keeping track of anything. You can keep track of voting, mm-hmm. or you can keep track of uh, what emails you sent and when you sent them, or you can keep track of patent information, or you can keep track of coins, like who owns what. And that's what Bitcoin started out. It just had one simple function, mm-hmm. which was to go ahead and keep track of who owns the Bitcoins. Right. All right. So what you can do is you can talk to that system. Uh, in a way that you can tell that system, all the computers all over the world that are running it, uh, I would like to transfer a Bitcoin from me to you. And I don't need to go through a bank. I don't need to say, Mother, may I? I can just do it personally, just as if we were sitting across the table and I handed you a $20 bill. Mm-hmm. And so that is what Bitcoin originally did. BitShares went far beyond that and said, well, if we can do that, could we put an entire company on the blockchain, have it be unmanned? So it's sort of like a drone, except... 
it's does some company function and the company that, that uh, Dan built was called BitShares and its function was to run a, a complete currency exchange and what we call a smart coin factory meaning that you could make many many different kinds of coins very quickly without having to be an engineer. So Bitcoin is a type of currency that might be traded uh, with bit shares in, a, in an exchange? Yeah, that Bitcoin right now trades on centralized exchanges and what happens there is you uh, send somebody who's running the exchange your Bitcoin and they say, oh, okay, now I'll tell my software how many Bitcoins you sent me. And then, so there's like a New York Stock Exchange stock broker, but instead of being in New York and working for Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. he's somebody in his basement somewhere in the world. And you send this guy who's functioning like a stock breaker, bro- stock broker, your Bitcoin, mm-hmm. and 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 then he gives you Bit shares in exchange. Well, let's take that step by step. Okay. okay I give him a Bitcoin, and he credits my account with those Bitcoins. But he currently owns them because he's got them in his hands, right? Well, I, these are I, digital like numbers, right? Yeah, it's it's a ledger entry that says uh, I have given you ten bitcoins, and he says okay. And just like you're working with a bank, you go into the bank and you you deposit your paycheck, and they add to your account, uh, you know, the value in your paycheck, and say okay, great. Uh, if you want to take it out, come back, and if we feel like it, we'll give you some of it back. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. Okay, so with the case of Bitcoin, I give him my Bitcoin, and then he has a little software program that he runs Mm -hmm. that allows me to trade those Bitcoins to and from other currencies like dollars or any of the other digital currencies out there. There's thousands of them. How do you withdraw a dollar or a euro? Well, if if he's got the right licenses, so he can do money transmission and so on, then... Uh, if you trade against his supply of dollars and then you say, I'd like to have my money back, he'll wire it to you. In like a traditional bank account? In a traditional bank account. And traditional banks like Bank of America would accept th- those transfers? Because he's just dealing with the ordinary swift wiring system, Yeah. You know, then yeah, they would. Unless you know the banks are a little bit uh, suspicious of uh, cryptocurrencies because it's frankly a competitor to them mm-hmm. and and so sometimes they won't let you have an account if they think you're using it for cryptocurrency so uh, but assuming you have an enlightened bank that realizes that this increases the wealth of the world by having low frequency or low friction transactions happening mm-hmm. um, and there are banks out there wanting to get into this business and looking at it from every different way but in principle and it happens and there are, are banks that, that handle it so I, I could wire dollars mm-hmm. to one of these companies. Mm-hmm. The company could say, okay, I'll sell you some uh, Bitcoin, mm-hmm. and then they could send Bitcoin to my computer, and it can sit there on my computer, or I could send it to you without needing the bank anymore. So I've read that there are 22 collaborating banks working on with cryptocurrency, and I'd like to ask you, isn't the whole point of cryptocurrency to be centralized without bank or government oversight or regulation. But it sounds like the reason you would want a collaborating bank is to be able to exchange cryptocurrencies for hard government-sponsored currencies. Yeah, the difference is that we're at this transition page where most of the world's wealth is sitting in what we call fiat government (laughs) currencies. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you would like that wealth to migrate into 
the digital currency world, you have to be able to take that wealth and buy digital currencies. Mm -hmm. And then you can do all the cool things you can do with digital currencies until the time when you want to buy a snow cone. Yeah. Okay. And then at that time, you want to convert it back into dollars because the merchant doesn't accept, probably doesn't accept digital currencies directly. Mm -hmm. Now, there, we're building out all kinds of things called off-ramps, mm -hmm. which, uh, for example, would be a, a credit card or a debit card that you can load with your digital currencies and then go spend just like any other debit card. And so as we build out the system, there'll be less and less need to leave digital currencies because I can go to a merchant mm -hmm. and the merchant swipes the card and gets paid in dollars. Yeah. But I didn't have to think about it because in my account is Bitcoin or BitShares. Yeah, kind of like if you were to travel to France mm -hmm. and buy a dinner, you use your American credit card and you swipe it even though the bill was in euros mm -hmm. and your bank account is deducted in dollars. So there's an automatic, uh, I guess, a currency converter conversion happening when you use that credit card. That's exactly right. So um, you've mentioned that uh, bitcoins and, and bit shares are uh, impervious to hackers. So is this because it would be impossible for someone to change the ledger in the millions of computers around the world in which there's a copy? One of the things about it is the fact that there's lots of copies mm -hmm. and the ability for all those computers, however many there are, mm -hmm. to uh, agree on what the state of that ledger is, mm -hmm. okay, remotely and separately. Once they've done that, everything gets encrypted in a way that can't be undone, mm -hmm. and therefore you have a permanent indelible record of what has happened. So, and just on the t oh, um, and then also on the topic of, of I guess crime, financial crime. Mm -hmm. uh, I've read that in the New York Times and other major newspapers, there have been reports of somehow associating the real human identity of certain people with lots of bitcoins um, with, with, with those large accounts and that they will be robbed. Someone will take a gun and will break into the house and will point it at your head mm -hmm. and say, transfer it to my account. And then the police are unable to follow the criminal based upon the whole virtues of, of, of cryptocurrency. So mm -hmm. how, how, how do you prevent those, this increasing incidence of, of theft? Well, it's exactly the same as if I had a suitcase full of $20 bills in my house. They break in, point a gun at my head, say, where's that briefcase? Yeah. I give it to them to avoid being shot, and they run out the door, yeah. and the police can't trace that either. Mm -hmm. So there is no difference between the two, and it's not a real discriminator uh, as far as uh, whether one's better than the other. It's like the same as cash, and I can pay you a briefcase full of 20s, mm -hmm. or I can send you the equivalent amount of bitcoins, and we've both had a private transaction that nobody could interfere with. If I were to take that same suitcase worth of uh, money mm -hmm. into a bank and say, I'd like to deposit this in the bank, mm -hmm. they'd want to know where it came from, mm -hmm. and then they'd probably put a hold on it for months. They might seize it and never give it back to me because they can't prove where it came from. Hmm. And uh, so I can't even get it into their system in order to send someplace else. Huh. A good example of where that happens in the states where uh, growing uh, hemp is uh, allowed by law. Mm -hmm. uh, people make a lot of money in that business legally in, for their, marijuana. in their state for marijuana. And in the process, they get a lot of cash. They can't take it to a bank because the bank is constrained to support it. 
And so there's no way for them to do anything other than have to provide their own security for the money they're making in that system. So, And what if they wanted to create, to transfer that wealth into bit shares, bitcoins? Yes, that's some of the things people are doing. How, how would they do that? Well, there are people who would perform that service, uh, which would be, uh, they, they could go to a person who deals in digital currencies and say, mm-hmm. here's some cash mm-hmm. and uh, give me a corresponding digital currency for it. Mm-hmm. Now I can go and trade that anywhere in the world on different exchanges and so on. And the person who provides that service mm-hmm. is responsible for doing the money transmission functions of taking care of it that most banks don't want to do. Now, I understand that there's a limited number of bitcoins mm-hmm. in the world. Some, so What's that number? How many millions? About 21 million. 21 million bitcoins. They're so, not all in circulation yet. Maybe 16 or 17 million are in circulation. And it's rare for someone to own an entire bitcoin. So most people own a fraction of a bitcoin. That's true. A given bitcoin might be eight or $9,000 right now. And someone called a miner could go through code and somehow earn a Bitcoin? Yeah, uh, that's how Bitcoins get taken out of the total potential of 21 million mm-hmm. and put into circulation is every 10 minutes, somebody wins a contest, if you will, by mm-hmm. providing the services of letting their network use their computer. Mm-hmm. They have a chance to win uh, a few Bitcoins. Mm-hmm. And so uh, gradually, every 10 minutes, a few more Bitcoins are inserted into the economy, mm-hmm. and that's designed so that as the use of Bitcoin grows, the supply grows. But right now, the, the demand for it has grown faster than the supply, so that's why the price has gone up. So if I put $100 into uh, an ATM that's for Bitcoins, I might get some tiny fraction of an actual Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, because uh, it, let's, let's just say it was worth $10,000. Yeah. Okay. And so that means $1,000 is a tenth of a Bitcoin. Yeah. And if you're going to buy a snow cone, it's pretty small. Yeah. And there's the limit to Bitcoin, right? Because uh, A, uh, it's very slow. If I want to go and use a vending machine, yeah. you know, it takes probably 10 minutes minimum mm-hmm. to do that transfer. And actually, you have to wait several 10 minute periods before it's confirmed. So it could be a half hour standing at that vending machine. Although you said that your technology is fast and it processes 100,000 transactions per second. Yeah, versus Bitcoin 7. Okay, so the whole world gets to share Bitcoin 7 transactions per second. They're mm-hmm. hoping to get that up to maybe 14. They spent a whole year to double it uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, the total uh, bandwidth that uh, BitShares system has is, uh, well, it's equal to MasterCard or Visa in terms of what's actually been done and what's potentially to do so a bit much sh- faster than that. So if I'm going to this, let's say I go to Fidelity, mm-hmm. um, which is an investment banking house, and I want to buy some shares of Coca-Cola. Now, I'm not buying a bottle of Coke, mm-hmm. but there's a company called Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. and I can buy a fraction of ownership in that company, which are called uh, shares through or stock. Mm-hmm. Is, does BitShare function similarly as a proportion of some company? BitShares itself is uh, an exchange, and it's got a utilitary token called BTS, which is something that allows it to build a lot of their financial products with. But you could put... Is it like buying a share of the New York Stock Exchange or buying a share of NASDAQ? No, it's... Uh, 
it's something that gives you voting rights and controlling that network. Uh -huh. But you could, mm -hmm. you know, if it was, uh, you know, if it was legal from a regulatory standpoint, mm -hmm. you can implement on the BitShares network shares in a company. And so there are people who have done that. They've gone and got SEC approval to issue a security mm -hmm. and offered it in the form of a coin on the BitShares network. So is BitShare, can I buy a BitShare? Yes. Okay, and that is, and, and does BitShare, and Bitcoin is one of hundreds of of other sorts of currency that I could buy with a BitShare. So BitShares and Bitcoins are entirely different currencies like a yen and a British pound sterling. That's a good way to look at it. Okay, so BitShare is its own currency. A Bitcoin is another currency. Mm -hmm. Could you name another three? Yeah, you've got uh, Dogecoin and you've got uh, Litecoin and you've got Ethereum. Okay, so if I wanted to invest in cryptocurrency, I might buy and I want to diversify my portfolio. Mm -hmm. I could go and I could buy some Ethereum, some Doge, some BitShare, and some Bitcoin. Yes. And it would be equivalent of buying some yen, some euro, some dollars. You got it. Okay. So they're all different cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, uh, okay. So I was wondering, so basically smart coins have a guaranteed face value, I've read. What are smart coins and who guarantees their value? Okay, the smart coins were designed to not have any counterparty, but to be stable. Mm -hmm. okay, by a counterparty, I mean somebody guaranteeing its value. It's guaranteed by the blockchain itself. Mm -hmm. Here's how it works. Anybody, most people are familiar with a home equity loan. You take the title to your house down to the bank, they keep the title and give you a loan against it. Mm -hmm. Okay, And you can borrow up to 80% maybe of the value of your house Yeah, uh, in that sort of thing. Well. In, in the case of BitShares, you could take BitShares to the blockchain itself and say, I'd like to borrow uh, a stable coin uh, against the value of my BitShares here. And the system says, okay, well, you can borrow up to half. Of so a smart coin is different than a BitShare? Yes. Okay. It's, it's something like, so a BitShare would perhaps be more of a volatile currency and a smart coin would be one of those coins that's pegged to gold. Well, in this case, it can be pegged to anything. We do have one called BitGold, yeah. which is pegged to the spot price of uh, gold. But there's also BitUSD, which is pegged to the value of the dollar. Okay. And so what the blockchain promises is mm -hmm. that at any time, uh, you can cash out $1 worth of bit shares, which is what's locked up in escrow. And so you can pass that around. The person who locked up the bit shares mm -hmm. had to put twice as much as he borrowed down. What he borrows into existence is the bit USD. So a smart coin is another fungible financial product that you could purchase in a cryptocurrency world. Yes. It's you could use your bit shares to buy bitcoins, to buy smart coins, to buy doge coins. Yep. Okay. Yep. Got it. Um so and then uh, I guess the last I'd like to talk. There are many different ways um, to to use these coins. I've heard that uh, the Amuse public ledger could be used by artists, athletes, politicians, and celebrities. Uh, with music, it gives digital royalty rights to artists with a Bitcoin-style blockchain. Could you speak about the implications for cryptocurrency on all these many different sectors of society? Yeah, the, one of the problems artists have is they're promised a certain 
percent of royalties or mm -hmm. something. But as it goes through the system, everybody gets their cut. Yeah. And by the time the artist gets their cut, mm -hmm. they're not even sure they got their fair share. Right? Mm -hmm. how, how do you do that accounting? Right. When you put it on the blockchain, uh, as soon as somebody buys a song, the blockchain divvies it up according to a smart contract mm -hmm. and hands it out to everybody, and the artist gets paid instantly. Yeah. And so there's nobody, you know, that they may suspect that is, you know, having their finger on the scale or, or not being truthful about how much money was actually raised. And so the transparency and the ability to guarantee a financial outcome is a nice benefit of the blockchain. Now, um, it also has political implications. You mentioned about keeping track of votes earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and then you also mentioned and then politicians. So I'm thinking, is this good for campaign contributions? Could it be regulated by the Federal Election Commission or state election commissions and then uh, state boards of elections. And then also um, when it comes to voting, we have a private anonymous voting. So you know who the voter is, but no one knows whom any individual voted for. Could you keep that anonymity uh, with uh, cryptocurrency open public ledgers? Absolutely. There was a company called Follow My Vote mm -hmm. that uh, built uh, such a system on the BitShares network. And it was really cool for the following reason. Mm -hmm. uh, a, no one could tell how I voted, but I could verify that my vote had been counted. Mm -hmm. Okay, So there was no hanging chads or anything like that. There was uh, uh, absolute ability to audit mm -hmm. all the votes without revealing who voted what. But here's the exciting thing. I can change my vote. Okay, So going through a primary, there's 20 candidates. Uh -huh. I vote for somebody. And then halfway through the, the uh, general election, that person drops out. Or before the general election, but halfway through the primaries. As so after the up. primary election, but before the general election. Any time up until the end of whenever the date is that the election ends, a person could change their mind. So if the candidate I first voted for early in the primary season drops out, I can reassign my vote to whoever's left. Oh, you're talking about like a presidential primary, whereas there could be when Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were running, mm -hmm. say you voted for... Um, uh, say you were voting for uh, uh, you're a Republican and you're voting for um, Marco Rubio mm -hmm. and you voted for him in Florida in whatever month that was yes. and as it got closer and he dropped out of the race and you could assign that vote to um, maybe if you didn't want Donald Trump you could have done it to Ted Cruz or something like that yes okay and that would have been after your own state's primary but before the entire race was over Assuming that everybody agreed that that's how the primary was going to run, yeah. any rules can be applied. Yeah. But the exciting thing, right now, uh, people towards the end of the primary don't feel they have much of a chance, right? The candidates that they would have voted for yeah. have long since been eliminated. Yeah. If you had done in some other state order, maybe different people would have survived. Huh. Uh, if you used a system like that, you could have... Uh, you could have the primaries happening in any order you want, mm -hmm. but as the as you go through more and more states, yeah. and your candidate gets eliminated, you can switch. And could this be utilized by super political action committees, super PACs, or uh, for campaign co contributions that could be monitored? Oh yeah, yeah. Because uh, one of the things we can do is associate KYC AML. That's the Know Your Customer Anti Money Laundering. Uh, positive identification associated with a given account. Mm -hmm. And you could say, hey, unless your account has gone through that process, you can't donate. Mm -hmm. But if you have gone through that process, you can donate to a campaign, and we, we know which account donated and who owns that account, so therefore 
a computer can tally that up and know exactly that all the laws have been obeyed. So one thing that a lot of government people don't realize is this is a great way to make sure the laws are followed exactly and more importantly, fairly. And you could verify that, for instance, uh, in American elections, only American citizens and green card holders can contribute money. So if you have a friend living in Great Britain who is British Mm -hmm. and he's like, I'd love to give you a hundred bucks, that's illegal. Could you prevent foreign nationals from contributing to American elections? You could detect it. Okay. Right? And then take enforcement actions associated with it. But and can, how would you take enforcement actions within the world of cryptocurrency? I thought this was like separate from police and well, government. Well, that's a, one of those myths out there. Okay? okay. Cryptocurrencies can be perfectly legal and perfectly enforce the law in an auditable way. And it, it, it could be a great tool of government. And if someone cheats, can the CIA or FBI do something about it? Yeah. Now, now there's two sides to this. Okay? Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of when a, an account is born, it can be born anonymous. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't know who owns it. Hmm. All right? But as that account interacts... Then, that's in, then, like, for instance, in this case with political contributions, no anonymous accounts could contribute to campaigns. Exactly. That could be a rule. Yes. Okay. Right. And so... Uh, you can look down through and say, wait a minute, this came in from an anonymous account, uh, turn that money into the government. Right. So, uh, therefore, you can keep it absolutely pure. Now, if somebody who did register, was an American citizen, mm-hmm. gets handed money from third parties yeah. and then turns around and contributes it, it's logged right there in the blockchain. Okay. Okay, you can see, hey, wait a minute. So if someone's can, just a pass-through straw man. You can detect that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, I guess the FEC or the local state board of election could take action against that campaign or that contributor uh, in the real world. Yeah, so they've got a complete documentation trail of all the money and how it flowed, and then they can do their ordinary investigations, and they can automate that. Like the IRS could automate it and check all that. Now, of course, cryptocurrencies and their exchange function across many different political spectrums around Mm -hmm. the globe. Mm -hmm. So is it difficult for, for, for... different laws to be applied within the world of cryptocurrency? No, that's that's exactly uh, how they're defined. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, they you don't want to constrain them because the laws in China are different from the laws in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So instead you say, okay, uh, I can... I can have a coin that's only usable by Chinese citizens who have done Chinese uh, yeah. you know, identification. Yeah. And there'd be no way you could transfer it to an American account and vice versa. Uh, but there are uh, other countries in the world where freedom reigns still. Yeah. And uh, in those countries, uh, people can freely interact the way they would hand a dollar bill across the table or a peso. Uh, they could hand a coin without needing identification. Now, are you finding, you've worked at at large blue chip companies like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics. Are you finding that those sorts of companies are investing their own wealth and conducting corporate transactions in cryptocurrency? Well, uh, companies like IBM have indicated it. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's a consortium of big banks like JP Morgan and some of their uh, affiliates who have uh, started sponsoring research in these things. Mm-hmm. So, yes, but not the typical Boeing or something like that. That yeah. probably is not something they'd be interested in, but they could. Yeah. So, um, as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to ask you to speak to our listeners about um, why it is that you think 
the cryptocurrency is something that they might consider investing in, uh, why it is that you've dedicated so much of your time and expertise towards creating uh, more opportunities and more efficiencies in uh, blockchain technology and cryptocurrency, and what you hope would be the impact of your efforts to create a better functioning world within the cryptocurrency uh, spectrum. Okay, I like to say honest money in a level playing field. With cryptocurrency, you can design money that can't be you know, quantitatively eased or printed and inflated. And, you know, I mean, you can make ones that can too, but whatever the money is, it's honest. There's nobody with their thumb on the scale behind the scenes. Level playing field means that the little guy and, and the big guy have the same set of rules and the same thing that they can do. So that, to me, is very important. And then the other one would probably be the same old argument that happened between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson when they served in George Washington's uh, administration. cabinet. Yeah. And uh, they were arguing about whether there should be a strong central bank or whether that should be dispersed to a decentralized thing. Jefferson wanted it dispersed, no central bank. Hamilton wanted a big central bank. Uh, Hamilton won that argument under George Washington and we got the first central bank of the United States. But central banks uh, centralize power too much and influence the government too much. Uh, Rothschild is famous for saying, if I control the nation's money supply, I care not who makes its laws. It corrupts our legal system to have big banks have too much power. Mm -hmm. Okay, So when we start moving those banking functions out into a decentralized world, it, it makes for better freedom, better government, better Jeffersonian-type uh, philosophy in terms of having lots of different places you can go and do business without one central authority ruling your life. And I think that that's very important because right now we're inching ever closer to the point where as soon as they get rid of cash, which they're trying to do, and have just everything in the digital system, mm -hmm. they can throw a switch and turn off your life. Mm -hmm. Okay, And that's fine if they agree with you politically, but if a different administration is in office and they uh, use those same powers to turn off your life, then it's not funny anymore. And I think that's one of the big problems we have today in politics is the two sides fighting over two different sets of issues are happy to allow the government to violate the other side's rights. Like freezing assets of Iranian or Russian individuals. That would be an example. Uh, or uh, deciding that one group of people you disagree with are going to be denied certain privileges, right? Um, we've, we've got people who are building cryptocurrencies. The government has come along and without due process turned off their bank accounts, froze all their assets, left them unable to hire a lawyer, and then say, okay, defend yourself from our charges. We've got unlimited power from the government, and we're going to take you to court and keep you in court for the rest of your life unless you agree to uh, plead guilty to some minor charge so that we can put you out of this business. That's happening. That happens a lot. Okay, That kind of abuse of government power uh, is the kind of thing we need to work on because if we ever get to the point where the whole cage is built and they can slam the door shut and say we've eliminated paper currency and now we can track every payment you make and if we don't like your politics we can simply turn you off and now you have no money you can't buy or sell and you're essentially at our mercy so it becomes trivial to implement a tyranny and those are some of the same kind of things that the Revolutionary War was fought to prevent with King George III and now we've got something much more powerful than King George III forming out there. 
uh, in terms of bank-controlled government. And that has been Stan Larimer, the CEO of Cryptonomics, a godfather of BitShares, um, an expert with industrial-grade real-time digital currency and, and an engineer who essentially speaks about an age-old uh, tension between freedom and security, uh, whether uh, cryptocurrency offers the promise of uh, political liberty, freedom of expression, uh, and freedom of economic activity that can be independently verified uh, without interference from regulators and governments, um, whether that freedom is used to uh, facilitate uh, evasion from an oppressive, uh, tyrannical government or to evade uh, international law enforcement authorities uh, in the case of terrorist cells, uh, cryptocurrency is as good or as bad as its users, but has perhaps more transparency and accountability than other sorts of currencies. Uh, Stan speaks about creating uh, honest money in a level playing field, um, uh, driven by a set of uh, uh, ideals uh, for personal liberty and making sure that individuals are held to the same set of rules and that centralized banks would not uh, lead to a corruption of political power. Uh, Stan is driven by um, an interest in protecting the rights of all individuals who participate in our economy. So Stan, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.